0: This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we take a look back at Seattle's very first Gay Pride Week with its lead organizer, David Neth. It's been 45 years since he and others decided that, like other big cities, Seattle needed its very own Pride event, and it needed to be a full week.
1: I'm small-town Pennsylvania, and I thought, Seattle, this is a big city. We should have a full Gay Pride Week instead of just this one-day thing. We need to get put on the map.
0: We also hear from Andrew Villanov, founder and head of the Northwest Progressive Institute, a regional organization dedicated to studying and advocating for progressive legislation in the region. They've also recently launched a feature last week in Congress that tracks how our national legislators voted each week. That's all ahead, so stay with us. This month, Pride marches and celebrations are happening all across the country and all across the world and they take on a special significance. 2019 is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, where patrons of a gay nightclub in Greenwich Village decided to fight back against police after a long history of harassment and arrests. In Seattle, 2019's Pride Fest is marking its own milestone, the 45th anniversary of the city's very first gay pride week in 1974. In countless ways, and for countless reasons, Seattle was a very different city for gays and lesbians in 1974. An organization called Seattle Counseling Services for Sexual Minorities was established in 1969, and the Seattle City Council passed an Employment Non-Discrimination Ordinance protecting homosexuals in 1973. But most gay, lesbian, and transgender people in the city remained closeted, and discrimination continued. David Neth was one of the lead organizers of Seattle's first Pride Week in 1974, and he recalls what it was like for him coming to Seattle for the first time in the early
1: 70s. Well, when I arrived here, it was in the process of coming out. I was a seasonal park ranger out at Mount Rainier who had transferred from the East Coast. So this was all a new area to me out here and exciting and wonderful. Uh, and at some point, uh, I decided that I was going to come out of a out of the woods and into the city. I somehow found out that there were gay bars on Pioneer Square in Seattle, and I drove an hour and a half down into the city, parked in Pioneer Square, found the address for the 100 or for the uh, 614 club. They're right there on 1st Avenue, and I stood out the front door of it. I thought I can't go in there. And I could know who have no idea what might be happening in there. <laughs> I got back in my truck and drove all the way back to Mount Rainier.
0: Neth eventually returned to Seattle to stay, and he moved into a place in Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill had become something of a haven for the gay community, in part because it was affordable.
1: Capitol Hill was kind of derelict at the time. I mean, these were the 1905, 1910 homes. They were run down. It was the early 70s when Boeing was going bust, Um, and it was sort of the natural place for the lower socioeconomic folks, so all us people in my age bracket that were coming into the city, ended up in group houses on Capitol Hill because I actually paid, my partner and I at the time, paid $25 a month rent for a bedroom in a basement of a big house with other gay people.
0: Not everyone was happy they were there. would ultimately co-found the Seattle Gay Community Center in the neighborhood, and there was pushback at a local hearing about it.
1: The new president of the Capitol Hill Community Council came to that hearing to protest about us being allowed to be up there. And one of the things he's quoted in the newspaper as saying is that it's the wrong kind of community center because we should be seeking deliverance from our lust, was the exact quote in the newspaper. We should be seeking deliverance from our lust, not having a community center.
0: And there was continued harassment by the police.
1: The relationship with the police department in the early 70s was pretty horrible. Seattle had uh, just gotten through the scandal of the police pay off, which all the gay bars had to pay the police off, and that had been going on for years and years. The police were still harassing people walking out of gay bars, and you'd get arrested for jaywalking.
0: All of this was happening at a time of real political unrest in America. Nixon's impeachment hearings were coming to a boil. The UFW grape and lettuce boycotts led to a protester blowing himself up at a Capitol Hill Safeway while trying to set up a bomb. And of course, there was the anti-war movement protesting America's involvement in Vietnam. But they weren't necessarily inclusive of gays and lesbians.
1: Yeah, quite the contrary. Um, They were against the gay people if we were at all visible in a way.
0: Still, LGBTQ people in the U.S. were becoming more visible. New York and L.A. had both had their first gay pride marches in 1970. In 1974, Neff and others decided they wanted to do something in Seattle.
1: About April, it came to me that, you know, the Stonewall anniversary was coming up, and that um, Seattle had had a gay pride day in the past. I think they had a really small march several years prior to that in Pioneer Square area. But they got a few people that I'm small town, Pennsylvania. And I thought, Seattle, this is a big city. We should have a full gay pride week instead of just this one day thing. We need to get put on the map. And I felt like, well, okay, we need to make, make a big splash and we need to figure out a week. We called the community center called a meeting at volunteer park to see who would show up, who was interested in helping organize it. So I have the typed up list of the names and their phone numbers. I think there were about 12 people on it. Several people from university of Washington had already started a, Gay organization there, and so there were several people from that. So that from that group, we all got together and started figuring out what we could do and how we could fill the whole week of events.
0: The first part of the week would begin with panel discussions, as well as a memorial for the upstairs lounge fire, which was an arson attack on a gay nightclub in New Orleans that killed 32 people in 1973. Friday was the official opening of the Gay Community Center in Capitol Hill, co-founded by Neth and others. Saturday began with a picnic in Occidental Park, then moved to Volunteer Park for roller skating and a sing-along at the top of the Volunteer Park water tower. And even though this was more of a party-like atmosphere, Neth recalls the poster for the event and reflects on some significant ways Seattle's first Pride Week was different.
1: If you look at that poster, the interesting thing about it from today's perspective is that there was not a single event on that poster that involved alcohol or bars or anything. And there was even a blurb on it about child care provide that we as men had organized child care to provide for for lesbians and, and people that needed childcare so they could go to events. And we did have places for that. So I just was kind of proud of that when I looked back at it and began to realize, yeah, this was alcohol-free and childcare and sensitive to women's issues at the time. So that was a very positive thing.
0: Sunday, the final day, featured what Neth and other organizers called a gay in at Seattle Center, which culminated in joining hands around the main international fountain. But when they were initially planning the week, they weren't sure what to do on Sunday evening.
1: And then we just sort of at the last minute as we're drawing up this poster, said, well, let's put um, something for the evening. Let's put trashing. And it says on the poster, trashing of an oppressive institution. When we wrote it, we didn't know what we were going to do or which institution it would be or anything about it. We just put it on there and made the posters up. Sunday afternoon, we're done with the stuff at Seattle Center, and we're sitting around and said, well, we're supposed to do something this evening. What are we going to do? Well, the first problem was that the term trashing of an oppressive institution, to us, meant trashing like in a drag queen sense, or you trash talk somebody. The police had obviously determined that we were talking about actually doing trashing of a building, such as like throwing blood on people wearing fur, that sort of thing. So they were beside themselves to figure out what we were doing. Which, as I like to say, was hard because we didn't know what we were going to do. First thing we did was uh, in the afternoon, as we said, well, let's just we just walked around the downtown police station, and it didn't really have a public place, especially on a Sunday, that you could go in and file a complaint or something. So we just walked around the block and, and talking about well. This is kind of bogus. We're not getting much done walking around the police station. Well, in the process of doing that, I got arrested because the police were watching us, obviously. And uh, I stepped off the curb while the light was flashing, don't walk. And I got arrested for that. So basically jaywalking. And I got taken into the police department. Obviously, at this point, I know the Police were watching us because as I'm walking down the hall, officers walking the other direction toward us would yell again, and stuff like that at me. And they didn't book me, they didn't actually put me in jail. They took all my information and then turned me back out.
0: Neth and the others decided they had more to do that night.
1: So we left there and thought, well, okay, well, that ticked us off. <laughs> so we went out to the uh, smaller police station up in Wallingford, their precinct station. We all walked in. I think there were probably 10 or 12 of us, and there was officer at the front desk, can I help you? Well, we all started making out and kissing and demanding to be arrested that we were perverts. And he called another officer from the back. They threw us out of the place and locked the front door and pulled the blinds down. And so we stood out in the yard of that property and and continued to kiss and make out and stuff. And the funny part was you could see them peeking out through the Venetian blinds, lifting up the little things and peeking out at us. And nothing ever happened, and we didn't uh, really plan this well. We didn't have any press coverage or anything like that, but it was more of, I think, a more of a release for us, sort of in-your-face sort of thing.
0: All told, a total of two to 300 people participated in Seattle's first Pride Week. I asked Neth if he was aware that he was making history at the time.
1: Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. It was just like you were... You were fighting for every little tidbit you could get, and and that's just the way it was going to be, but you were happy with yourself, you were happy with your friends, you had a community for the first time.
0: Neth is quick to stress that it took everyone from that community coming together to make Seattle's first Pride Week happen.
1: By no means was I the main person in any of all this. There were a lot of lesbian women, and there was a lesbian resource center that was going on, the work I'd said had already been done by the Seattle Counseling Center, and the first or three year with that first wave of guys and gals put on the first gay community center down on cherry street they laid the groundwork for me and then i laid the groundwork for the way ahead i guess
0: ultimately the first pride week was a success on many levels and it had a lasting positive psychological impact
1: well yeah i think the getting out in public and not just feeling like cockroaches in the night at gay bars was hugely significant. And I think probably the significance to me when I went into that counseling center that first time and realized, oh my God, there's, there are other happy, healthy gay people that have good relationships and friendships and enjoy life. Because when I walked into that place as a 22-year-old 20, man from the East Coast small town, my life view was that by the time I was 30, I would commit suicide because I was a gay person and that's what gay people did. That's what their life was. That's how, that's all they could expect. And it wasn't until after that experience that at some point randomly, I was doing something that I saw myself as a 70 year old man, happy. That was a humongous life changing event. Um, that, but it was subtle. It didn't happen a snap thing necessarily until, It was the process of those experiences that got me to that point where, oh, my God, I'm not going to be a a horrible, sad gay person at 30 years old committing suicide, because that's what the movies told me I should expect.
0: Looking back over the last 45 years, Nuth is reflective about how much has changed during that time. He and his partner married a few years back.
1: My family flew out from the East Coast, all my brothers and sisters. And, uh, it turned out to be absolutely the most amazing day of my life. Um, to, to realize in my lifetime that I could marry my partner was astounding to me. I'm obviously emotional about the marriage part. The, the only other time I've ever gotten that emotional was a few years ago, walking down to the Seattle center on gay pride week and seeing where we barely got thirty people, maybe ten thousand people crammed into that area. And looking up and you know, on top of the Space Needle is the gay pride flag. This huge gay pride flag on top of the Seattle Space Needle. So that was at that point and at by marriage I realized that I'm glad for all that I did.
0: Seattle's 2019 Pride Fest Capitol Hill is Saturday, June 29th, and Pride Fest Seattle Center is Sunday, June 30th. There's more information at seattlepridefest.org. The Northwest Progressive Institute was founded by my next guest, Andrew Villeneuve, back in 2003 when he was in high school. Since then, it has grown to be a force in regional politics, covering and advocating for progressive issues across three states, Oregon, Idaho, and, of course, Washington. Andrew Villeneuve, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, you know, let's just first talk about the the mission of the Institute, which is to raise America's quality of life through insightful research and imaginative advocacy. So first, let's talk about the research aspect. So on your site, it says that you, quote, analyze problems using the logic of progressive values to find and advance ideas that will improve lives. So first, tell us, what do you mean by, quote, the logic of progressive values? What does that look like?
2: Well, the logic of progressive values refers to the way that we think about everything as progressives because we have a set of values that unites us. And really, those values are what we have in common as opposed to issue positions which stem from our values or anything else about our identities. And the two core values that we share are empathy and mutual responsibility. Those are sort of the core values that we have. And empathy is basically being able to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. And a lot of our policies that we advocate are based on that value. Mutual responsibility is the idea of us being accountable to each other. So instead of simply looking after uh, one another as like individuals, for example, you know I take care of me and my family and that's it, uh, we actually all look out for each other. So we're our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, as President Obama used to say. And that's a very different value set than the other side, which believes in personal responsibility but not mutual responsibility. So because we believe in mutual responsibility, for example, that means that we need to have taxes so that we can support all the things that we are collectively responsible for, whether that's roads or bridges or schools or pools or parks or fire protection or anything that we think is worth having in society. We know that only by being accountable to each other can we have those things. So the logic of progressive values is is using those two values along with additional values like protection or tolerance or fairness or opportunity or broad prosperity all progressive values using those values to think. And when we use those values and we come up with policies that are very different than what the other side comes up with. And so that's what really distinguishes us from them. And that's what we mean. When we say the logic of progressive values.
0: Well, so let's talk about a couple of recent examples of your research and how all that sort of fits into place. So uh, you did research on Medicare for all as an issue here in the state. That seems to very much fit into what you were just speaking about. How is the research conducted and specifically on Medicare for all? What did you find?
2: Well, we have uh, done research polling now for many years, and what we do is we go out into the field and we ask people about their support of progressive ideas. And so, Do
0: you conduct that by phone? Do you do that in person? How do you do it?
2: It's done in a, a blended methodology approach. We used to do, originally we had surveys that were only landlines, but we recently, in the last couple of years, we started doing a blended methodology. So that means we call people, but we also have people answering questions through online panels. The polls are actually executed for us by our partner, Public Policy Polling, which is a professional polling firm. We design the surveys and they execute them. So it's a great partnership and we think it's been just wonderful for us for the last five years straight. And we're gonna continue that partnership. So when we asked about Medicare for All, we started asking about that a few years ago and we we found over 60% of Washingtonians support Medicare for All. And it's, it's fairly simple. The idea is we would just make healthcare available. As progressives, we don't believe in affordable healthcare. We believe in available health care as a difference. And we don't want it to be affordable like a consumer product you'd have to buy. We want it to simply be available because it's a human right. And so we need to get out of the neoliberal frame of talking about the price and making it cheap. And we need to get into the progressive frame about making it there so that people don't have to stress out about paying for it, but they can just get it because it's a human right.
0: Well, and so who ultimately uses this information? Um, certainly there was a very robust debate about uh, universal health care that happened in the legislature this year. So uh, who takes on the research, the polling research that you do?
2: Well, it's useful to a lot of different people. We, we brief elected officials on our research all the time. So certainly they use it, but also activists use it. Uh, we've seen many people out on social media and other venues saying, you know, There's a lot of polling that supports our ideas and they cite our research. And so our goal is to be a helpful resource, not just to elected officials, but also to activists and members of the public who want to know where the public stands on on these ideas that we need. And we don't just do, let's say, Medicare for all. We also have been researching corporate tax accountability and the Green New Deal and environmental protection policy. Yeah, I was gonna
0: mention, actually, when you talk about corporate tax uh, accountability, you did uh, research on the capital gains tax, as we all know that th- this was another hot button issue that failed to pass the legislature this year. But uh, talk about what you found there.
2: Well, what we found for five consecutive years is robust support for a capital gains tax on the wealthy in Washington state to fund public education. So we started, and I think 2015 was the first year we began asking this question. And what we found is that a healthy majority of Washingtonians support a capital gains tax. The figure of those strongly in support has consistently been over 40%. So we've been going to the legislature and saying, look, Somewhere in the mid-50s, the figure ranges, I think this year it's 59%, uh, supports the capital gains tax on the wealthy to fund public schools. So there's clearly strong support for this. You should do this. And each year, the legislature has failed to get the job done. But I'm thinking 2020 could be the year for us because we just had Guy Palumbo leave the Washington State Senate, and he was one of the people who was reluctant to support the idea. Yeah. And his his successor, Derek Stanford – well, not not for sure yet, but likely Derek Stanford – is someone who is likely going to be a supporter of a capital gains tax So, because we asked. And I think that that changes the math in the Senate. It potentially enables us to get there in 2020. And actually 2020 is the year to do it, and the, here's the reason why. Whenever you do a progressive policy initiative of any kind, you have to think about what's going to happen after you win. And if it's something that's going to be really objectionable to the right wing, they're probably going to try to force a public vote on it if it's at the state level, because they can do that. They can do a referendum. They can do an initiative. And at NPI, we're ballot measure strategists and specialists, so we think about ballot measures all the time. And we think about, well, what if this issue went to the ballot? And if you don't have a plan for that, then you can get into big trouble. So if there were to have been a capital gains tax during the current legislative session, I imagine there would have been a ballot measure on it and what would have been our plan to win. So if there's a ballot measure, the best time to play defense on the ballot when a progressive policy is passed is in a presidential year. Anything that's a heavier lift, presidential year is the best year to do it. So we are looking at an opportunity in 2020 in the short session to do a capital gains tax. And then if the right wing forces a vote on it, We're voting on the idea of a capital gains tax at the 2020 presidential election ballot, which is exactly when we want to be voting on it. If we have to vote on it, that's when we want to go to the ballot. So this is actually an ideal time frame to get this done. And if the legislature can actually get its act together, then we could have a really good year in 2020 for progressive tax reform.
0: Well, this kind of gets into what you talk about on your site as, quote, evaluating good intention legislation and looking for ways to improve it and make it stronger and sounder. Um, So when you take this approach, are you talking with consultants? Are you talking with the legislators themselves? How does that usually look?
2: Well, we're trying to get people to come together and make a piece of legislation better than it would have been otherwise. Because while there is a public process in the legislature, for trying to improve bills you know there's public hearings there's uh, opportunities for markup if you just rely on that process alone you're probably not going to get the results you want it takes a lot of advocacy work in between the what i'll so, sort of call the uh, decision points like a uh, having a public hearing having an executive session having the bill get through the senate ways and means committee or the house Appropriations Committee or the Rules Committees of either house, whatever the case may be. There's all these points along the way where the bill has to uh, jump over a hurdle. But if you're only using the the legal parts of the legislative process, the the parts that are required by rules, the parts that are required by law, And you're not supplementing that, then you're probably not going to get the best bill. What you have to have is a fruitful working partnership between activists, advocates, elected officials, even uh, people who are on the other side of the bill who may have criticisms. If people on the other side have criticisms that would improve the bill, you'd be foolish not to take those into account and try to improve the bill if you thought that that could help you get over the finish line. And so that's what we mean when we talk about evaluating good intention legislation, marking it up. Sometimes you find a defect that needs to be corrected in a bill. This happens all the time. And if you can spot that defect, then the legislature can improve the bill before we get to the point where it would be fatal.
0: And can you give some examples of of where you've done this to this kind of work uh, successfully or otherwise?
2: Sure. So it happens routinely in the legislative process. We were working on a petitioning reform bill a few years ago, and the initial version of the bill just had some problems. It could have left it open to a court challenge. And so we wrote up a list of things that needed to be fixed in the bill and said, look, the bill would benefit if we did this, this and this. And we we need to make this constitutional and survivable in a a court. And so these are the things we need to change. These are the the provisions that we need to make the bill compliant with the First Amendment. And the changes were made to the bill, and it became a much stronger bill. And that actually got through the Senate and went over to the House, and it was in in a strong position. Now, the the bill did not ultimately get through the House. Uh, The Republicans asked for the bill to be killed, and it was killed. But we were able to get the bill through the Senate, and I don't think we could have gotten the bill through the Senate if we hadn't fixed those issues, corrected those problems, because it it made the bill so much stronger. And people who were voting on the bill in the Senate knew that we had actually worked very hard to make the bill compliant with the First Amendment. So that's an example of how you improve legislation before you get to the point where people would be voting on it.
0: I want to uh, go back in time and talk about where all this started because as I mentioned, you uh, you began in high school. Uh, So in 2002, you decided to take action in response to a a Tim Eyman initiative. Uh, He of course is a a conservative figure in Washington who has launched dozens of voter initiatives. Uh, In this instance, it was an initiative to cut funding for public transportation. Talk about how and why you decided to get involved and particularly when you were still uh, in high school.
2: Well, I was sick of uh, watching Ayman win at the ballot. At the time that I got involved, Ayman had won several consecutive years at the ballot. He had passed initiatives in 1999, 2000, and 2001, and he was going for uh, another consecutive win. And I was really appalled that we, we were losing to him, and it seemed to me that maybe there just weren't enough people in the fight. And when you get frustrated by something, you decide to you know come off the sidelines and not be a spectator anymore. And that's essentially well, not everybody
0: what does, uh, particularly not when they also have you know schoolwork to do in high school.
2: But maybe that's true, but I was I was really fed up. And the thing that the thing that did it for me was I heard about Iman getting caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He had been pretending for some time that he was, not stealing money from his supporters and putting it into his pocket, but he, in fact he was. And when he was caught doing that, thanks to the great reporting of Neil Modi of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, well, he basically came out and gave this tearful press conference and said, you know, I, it was all me. I, I, I lied and I did take the money and I just think I should be well paid. And I was hoping to maintain a moral superiority over my opposition that I could say that they made money from politics and I didn't and yada, yada, yada. And so I thought, well, OK, great, you know. I think a lot of people assume that that would finish him. I certainly that had that as my first impression, like, well, who's going to re- be able to recover from this? But I'm in a sort of like has the nine lives of, of the. Yes, yes, cat. he
0: does. He can steal office chairs on video and still survive. Right? That's
2: right. He's unaffected. He's he's he he's like Trump before the before there was Trump. Right. Teflon and all that. So I found this out. I'm fortunate that I found this out very quickly because within a few days of, of this news breaking that Ayman had taken money from his supporters, lied about it, and you might have been led to think, oh, this is the end of Ayman. Nobody survived something like this. But within a few days, I was having a conversation with some friends the same age as me, and they told me how disappointed they were because they supported what Ayman was doing. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I've got friends who support this nonsense and are, you know, willing to forgive Iman and are disappointed because this is a setback to his career, I said, this, this is, this is horrible. I, I, I just can't remain uh, on the sidelines given what I've just learned. So I started a website, and uh, that's permadefense.org. And that website was intended to be basically a clearinghouse of information about the problems that Iman's initiatives caused. because I couldn't find anything that would tell you why Iman's initiatives were bad. They sound so good on the surface because Iman is a master of manipulating the media. He's a master of framing. He's a master of putting conservative frames together and, and selling them. So. I wanted a place where the the damage could be cataloged because I would see it crop up occasionally in news articles like this is what's happening to the ferries. This is what's going to happen to Sound Transit's light rail system. And for me, that was the kicker. I really want light rail to be built to downtown Redmond. I want it to be built to all these other places because we need it for our future. Young and I should mention like,
0: you're based in Redmond.
2: That's right. Uh, young people like me, we don't want to be forced to drive cars for the rest of our life to get where we want to go. And so, I've always been a rail fan, and, and building light rail was something that just, you know, intuitively made sense to me. So when Tim Eyman chose to attack that in 2002, and he, you know, I found out that my friends were some of my friends were supporting that agenda. I just couldn't be a bystander anymore. I was galvanized to take action. So I put up the website. And I started criticizing Ayman on a regular basis, cataloging information about the destructiveness of his initiatives. And then as time went on, I began looking for opportunities to help defeat that initiative. And I did that year what uh, a lot of people do when they're starting out. I started looking for people who felt the same way, writing to organizations and saying, are you going to work on defeating Iman's initiative? I remember contacting Boeing and Microsoft and the League of Women Voters and all these groups asking, "Are, are you in the fight to defeat Lyman, and many of them said they were, which is great. Uh, we went on to lose that that campaign that year, which was a, a great first lesson for me is when your first campaign is unsuccessful, but you stay in politics. That's, that's a good thing because it, 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 it teaches you about the agony of defeat and allows you to become a much stronger activist. You have you know you're much much more battle hardened basically so when 2004 came along a couple years later i was kind of ready for a bad night and obviously 2016 was another bad night but i've kind of i've kind of learned to be ready for bad nights and so i was able to handle that a lot differently than other people were but we've been able since permanent defense started we've been able to defeat many of him's initiatives we stopped his winning streak
0: well, it seems like you have. I mean, the jumping-off point was was very clearly Tim Iman for you, and I'm wondering. I, I assume that he's aware of you and and what you do. Have you had any interactions with him?
2: Oh yes, uh, we've debated each other many times. Uh, there's there's many times when we've when we've uh, gone head to head, whether it's been the Strangers editorial boardroom, or on you know one of the League of Women Voters forums that they've put together, and we've we've uh, we've debated each other many times, and I've also crashed quite a number of Iman's press conferences to spar with him because what happens is he comes and he manipulates the media. And then if there's no response, it's, it's Ayman's story. Uh, but Iman uh, can't go unresponded to, there has to be a response. And so that's why I go to his press conferences because I want the, the people of Washington need to see that there's another side of the story. Iman will never show them the other side. And so people need to see that in fact, there are, there are two sides to the equation and that the side of the equation that Iman doesn't ever want to talk about is what gets cut, the services that will be defunded if uh, Iman is is successful. And so when we when we talk about those services, people realize there's more at stake than just, you know, what level of taxes do you want to pay? It's also what level of services do you want? Because the taxes fund the services.
0: Right. Well, so all of this was the jumping off point for you. And as you say, you founded uh, Permanent Defense. So how did that lead to the founding of the Progressive Northwest Institute?
2: Well, the Northwest Progressive Institute came along about a year and a half after Permit Defense, and the reason it came along is because, as I said, Ayman has uh, – we interrupted his winning streak. He's actually had no consecutive victories since Permit Defense was founded. So if you look at before Permit Defense, he was winning every year at the ballot. After Permit Defense was founded, there are no consecutive victories, and in fact, there are a lot of consecutive defeats. So the pattern has been flipped which is really important. So the year after Permanent Defense was founded, Iman was actually off the ballot. It was the first year in the 2000s that he, in the aughts, that he was off the ballot. And so that gave me an opportunity to step back. Instead of having an Iman initiative to fight, I could spend my time thinking about maybe broader concerns. And at the time, Howard Dean was giving his sleepless summer tour, and uh, there was what was called the great liberal backlash of 2003. And so that all gave me a chance to think about Okay. well, what's really needed to to make everyone's lives better? Because it's it's satisfying to defeat. Iman, but only to a limited extent at at some point. So you you wanted to
0: broaden your scope.
2: Exactly. At some point, you want to actually go on offense and you would like to make things better, not just keep things the way they are. Uh, Defending the status quo is not very satisfying. And so permanent defense, you know, the name doesn't suggest any kind of offensive focus. And that's fine because permanent defense is a defensive focused project. But I wanted something that would bring together ideas, create a vision, a blueprint for governing well, not just stopping bad stuff like kind of things we see from Ayman and his initiatives. But what's what's a, a set of policies that stem from values that we can all rally around, that, that go back to what our state was founded on, what our country was founded on? So I said, well, who's who's putting that together that vision for our region? And I kept looking around and didn't see a group that was working on that, and so I said, well, if I can't find it, I'll create it. So thus was born the Northwest Progressive Institute, and we're still here almost 16 years later trying to define what a progressive vision is, trying to define what progressive ideas are, and making sure that elected officials and activists have the tools they need to push for progressive ideas.
0: And people can track all of this at nwprogressive.org. And uh, that website also features an online news source called the Cascadia Advocate. Tell us about that.
2: Well, the Cascadia Advocate started in 2004. It's one of our oldest projects and publications. And it's basically a digest of news and commentary. And it's where we do a lot of our work analyzing current events. So, you know, something happens in the news. We try to talk about, okay, how do we analyze this from a progressive perspective, understand what this means. And we also offer a number of cool features on the Cascadia Advocate, like our new feature Last Week in Congress, which we just started a few weeks ago. Last Week in Congress is a way for you to find out how members of our congressional delegation from Cascadia voted.
0: So that would be senators from Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and then also all of the several members of Congress.
2: Correct. Yeah. If you want to find out what happened on any major vote last week in Congress, has you covered, it's basically a rundown of each of the major votes in Congress from that past week. And then there's a scored roll call vote for each each of those uh, bills or nominations or whatever it is that they were voting on might be a resolution. There's different types of items that come up in Congress. So for each major item, you'll have a scored roll call vote by state showing you how they voted, and you'll be able to see the total tally for the region at the bottom. And we have a little visual representation of each state there so you can see, OK, how how did the representatives or senators from Idaho vote? How did the representatives or senators from Oregon vote and then Washington? And so it's really interesting. I, I learned something from it every week. Just just. And this is something together. you just launched. That's right. We launched it a few weeks ago. Uh, and I learned something every week. I mean, I was a little shocked just last week. Uh, you know, I was looking and, you know, another vote that I, I couldn't believe had had occurred. It's just like, you know, you'll never know when a Republican will cross the aisle. Sometimes they will break with their party or they will vote for something that you wouldn't expect. And a good example of that was that there was an immigration bill that Dan Newhouse voted for. It was
0: very surprising. I was surprised yeah. by that, too. Yeah.
2: And and I didn't know that he had cast He's a Republican from the fourth. That's right. Uh, he's he's from a very, 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 very conservative area, uh, right wing district. And so I was a little surprised uh, that he had jumped over on that vote. It made sense as I thought about it, but you just don't see that very often and so it surprises you when it when it does happen. And even and even Greg Walden of Oregon crosses over like more than you might expect. And so you get to see all those nuances in their voting record when you examine the the votes. And so last week in Congress is meant to give everyone a regional perspective because normally The coverage of Congress, if it exists at all, is on a state by state basis. So you only get the coverage from one state and a Cascadia advocate is giving you the regional view, not just Washington, not just Oregon, not just Idaho, but all three states, because we're all joined together in so many ways. As I said, we have these ecological uh, boundaries that sort of reign supreme over the artificial boundaries that we've created. And so we need to think about things from a regional perspective. So even though it might not seem like we have a lot in common politically with Idaho, we're kind of bound with them because we share this region. So it's useful to see how they're voting.
0: Well, and so last week in Congress, I think is a tool that people will find enormously useful for the reasons that you outlined. How can people find that?
2: If you go to the Cascadia Advocate, which is nwprogressive.org slash weblog, You can do a search for this week in Congress, last week in Congress, or you can on your page, you just press control F and then you can type in last week and the most recent edition of it should just crop up. You can also find it in Apple News, Google News, all the major sources for aggregation. If you just type in last week in Congress, it ought to come up and you can get to it. Again, from your phone, you can get to it from your uh, desktop browser. But it, it should come up if you if you type in "last week in Congress" in a search engine. And then, if if, uh, if you're not if you're still not seeing one of the posts, you can always add NPI after that, and it should come up then.
0: Well, it's it's great work, and uh, I will just say thank you uh, for joining us on this show, and thanks for all the the great work that you're doing.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you.
0: Andrew Villanov is the executive director of the Northwest Progressive Institute. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Hey, you guys, if you missed anything, if you'd like to catch up on past shows, if you'd like links to the things that we talked about, all of that information and more can be found at IndivisiblePodcast.org, and you can subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, I would love it. The email address for the show is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at pod. Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gettleman. Thank you again to my guests, David Neth, and Andrew Villeneuve. And as always, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.